In my um, lectures this year, I'm um, looking closely at the interaction between people, art, and architecture. These are lectures not specifically about buildings, specifically about art, or even about the people that commissioned either of them. It's about trying to understand how the Tudors and Stuarts thought about what we call art, what it meant to them, and what that can teach us about the society in which they lived. In my first lecture in the series, I defined art as uh, man-made objects that weren't purely utilitarian, things that were made to please the eye as well as serve the hand. Nobody in 16th century England, or indeed 17th century, would have thought of art in the same way as we do today. It wasn't a category of activity undertaken by artists. Making things was a craft, and it was a craft that was judged by uh, criteria that we would today not uh, necessarily recognise as criteria that you'd use to judge an artwork. And just very quickly to summarise what I said in my previous lectures, for those of you who weren't here, these criteria that were used in the 16th century were costliness, probably the first thing that uh, people took into account in terms of aesthetic appreciation, uh, craftsmanship, which at the time was described as cunning, the skill with which you made something. Uh, then thirdly, there was novelty, much prized characteristic then as uh, now. And finally, there was placement. Uh, in other words, the relationship that one thing had with another thing. And 16th century writers who commented on what they saw judged everything against cost, cunning, novelty, and placement. But in my last lecture, I explained that in 1603, a genuinely new era opened in the history of British taste and patronage. The opening up of Europe after the end of prolonged war with Spain re-established artistic links with Italy. And a small group of English aristocrats became obsessed with the art and architecture, in particular of Venice, um, and began to amass collections of painting, sculpture, and other works of art. And these objects were judged on a different set of criteria, criteria that we today would regard as being much more, if you like, art historical. We know that, uh, for instance, Charles I and Inigo Jones loved to play the game of attribute the painting. The king uh, would remove the labels off his recently required uh, works of art, and Inigo Jones was uh, invited to come in and guess who the individual painters were. So the whole process of attribution. Well, in 1658, a former courtier, uh, a, a royalist, a man called William Sanderson, published a book called The Most Excellent Art of Painting. Here is Sanderson from his book. And this book was a manual on how to choose pictures, how to discern originals from copies, and how to judge whether a work was well painted. His advice actually extended to how and where to hang your pictures in your house, including, for instance, the uh, uh, extraordinary advice that portraits of one's wife should be hung upstairs in private rooms in case they aroused adulterous thoughts in the mind of what he called an Italian-minded guest. <laughs> 
So uh, Sanderson, perhaps with this one exception, captured in his manual the aesthetic concerns of the circle of connoisseurs that uh, gathered around King Charles I. To be in this exclusive club of connoisseurs, you had to be a millionaire. And so it was a very small club. It was also very introverted. Uh, the Earl of Arundel, who you see here, who I talked about quite a lot last time, the Duke of Buckingham, Sutherland, Charles I, Henry, Henrietta Maria, and their advisors, like um, uh, Inigo Jones and Henry Wotton, looked inwards to the cabinets, closets, and galleries full of art in the great mansions and royal palaces, and only a tiny number of people outside this charmed circle had any idea what was going on on the inside. Effectively, art collecting before the Civil War was an activity that was only undertaken between consenting adults in private. <laughs> the only glimpse that everyone else got was of the banqueting house ceiling, an epic work of art accessible to more or less anyone who wanted to see it. But both the ceiling and indeed the architecture of the building in which it was set were considered to be products of a minority interest at court that was doing its own thing. Well, this evening, we're going to see how, after around 1680, 1685-ish, paintings became much more readily available. And we're going to see how people bought huge numbers of them to decorate their houses. In fact, in 1691, some 24,000 paintings were offered for sale in the London auction houses. And a detailed analysis of inventories of middle-class houses, not undertaken by me, but someone else, in the late uh, 17th century, shows that about half of all houses in London had around 12 pictures hanging in it. And if you multiply that up, it means that some 132,000 paintings were hanging in London houses alone by 1700. Now, this represents a very substantial change in how people decorated their houses, especially given the immediate social and political background. As England plunged into the Civil War, the famous royal art collection amassed by Charles I was uh, dispersed and sold, and many of his close friends and associates lost their collections through forfeit through sale and through destruction. Painting and sculpture actually became to be regarded as morally and theologically suspect by many people. And the environment for collecting, let alone for any type of uh, energetic artistic production, was extremely negative. So how do we explain the great upsurge in purchase of what I call easel paintings, in other words, paintings that, that were um, on canvas or, in, or on panel with a frame, so you put them on an easel. Um, and what impact did this upsurge have on the buildings uh, of the time? Well, the restoration of 1660, like the Treaty of London in 1603, which I mentioned last time, reconnected England with mainland Europe. And this had two 
specific aspects to it. The first was that as Charles II returned to England, with him came a large number of people who had been in exile. People who had become accustomed to the ways, attitudes and tastes of people in the Spanish Netherlands, in France and in Germany. And this included new attitudes and new tastes to what we would recall uh, today art. That's the first point. The second point is, for the majority of the aristocracy and gentry who had remained in England during the interregnum, it provided opportunities to access the artistic products of Catholic Europe that had been denied to them for more than a decade. So let's start with the first of these two points, the question of taste. Now, in a postmodern world in which we live, we hold taste to be a relative value. But in the 17th century, beauty was seen as an objective quality that could be readily identified, and therefore it was quite possible that perfect beauty could be attained. There was fierce debate about how to define in some way perfect beauty, but essentially it was believed that because the identification of beauty was about perception, the education of the beholder was the crucial, the deciding factor. An educated person would display what they thought was natural taste, and they would be able to perceive true beauty in a painting, in a sculpture, a building, or a piece of music. Now, this view of taste had an important social consequence because education was associated with gentility. The well-off, refined and leisured classes had more time and more ability to become educated arbiters of taste. So what followed from this was that only the gentle, the rich and refined, had the ability to discern true beauty and therefore had good taste. Or put it another way around, taste and knowledge of painting, sculpture and architecture set the possessor above the multitude. Now this was a very pervasive attitude that continued through most of the 18th century. William Shenston uh, wrote uh, a pamphlet called On the Test of Popular Opinion in the 1760s. And this is what he said, and I quote, I think, moderately speaking, the vulgar are generally in the wrong. <laughs> if they happen to be otherwise, it is principally owing to their implicit reliance on the skill of their superiors. This was a big change in attitude from the attitudes held by the majority at the start of the century. Then a member of the upper gentry could say, and I quote, I'd rather that my son should hang than study letters, for it becomes the sons of gentlemen to blow the horn nicely, to hunt skillfully and elegantly, to carry and train a hawk, but the study of letters should be left to the sons of rustics. By the mid-18th century, however, no gentleman, let alone an aristocrat, 
could ignore his cultural education. Indeed, the country gentry had become the butt of jokes on the metropolitan stage for being ignorant, clumsy, unfashionable, and dim-witted. In 1775, a writer in The Connoisseur could state, and I quote, the rough country squire whose ideas are wholly bent on guns, dogs, horses, and game. His hall must be adorned with stag's head instead of busts and statues. And in a room of family pictures, you will see prints of the most famous stallions and racehorses. So, essentially, by 1700, it was necessary for a gentleman to be a connoisseur of painting. But where did the thousands of paintings come from to feed this new connoisseurship? Well, first of all, they came from a emerging market in second-hand paintings. Since the late 15th century, in order to protect the rights of the guilds of painters and stainers, it had been illegal to uh, import paintings into the country from abroad. Charles I and his collecting friends had broken this embargo, but from the 1670s, it was explicitly recognized that if an import of a painting was for personal use, it could be permitted. A sort of blind eye was turned to it. Though written permission was given for the import of paintings into England in the 1670s and 1680s, in 1686 came the first public auction of paintings held in the banqueting house at Whitehall. And finally, in 1695, a law was passed permitting the import of paintings from a board subject to an import tax of 20%. So at the same time as a sort of floodgates opened from uh, uh, abroad, it became not only possible um, and it became not only possible but legal to buy foreign paintings, a new school of native painting began to develop uh, in addition. Uh, we have to remember that all crafts, and painting was just one of them, were controlled by the monopolistic city craft guilds, and the painters and stainers had the power to confiscate paintings that had been made by people who were not one of their number. Uh, for centuries, foreign painters had got uh, round this rule by living outside the city boundaries, or at least outside their jurisdiction. So Van Dyck, for instance, lived in the Liberty of Blackfriars, which was outside the authority of the guild. The fact that painters were liverymen confirmed the fact that they, as well as sculptors and architects, who were generally uh, uh, masons or, or bricklayers, uh, were not regarded as gentlemen. Socially, uh, uh, painters fell into the category of skilled manual classes. And before the Civil War, there were few, if any, native painters who were really socially uh, acceptable. I mean, Anthony van Dyck, of course, was knighted, and lived in a large house paid for by the king. Uh, Peter Paul Rubens was a diplomat, but they were both foreign. Robert Streeter, who was Charles II's master painter, extremely versatile and capable artist, but as well as painting 
complicated allegories. Uh, he decorated ceilings and he grained panelling. He painted uh, signs. Um, and this pulled down his status in the eyes of society. One of the very few creative and artistic geniuses of the first half of the 17th century to gain acceptance socially was Inigo Jones. But after the Restoration came a class of new gentlemen uh, architects, and in due course, a class of gentlemen painters. So first of all, you get men uh, like Hugh May, uh, who designed Windsor Castle, uh, William Sanwell, who designed uh, the King's House at Newmarket, Captain William Wind. These, these were gentlemen by birth, and they made a living from advising on architecture and occasionally uh, building and designing and building buildings. And of course, later on came Wren um, and Vanbrugh and others. But painters had a much harder time. A man like Vanbrugh could leave the detailed drawing of his schemes to a low-born but brilliant assistant like Nicholas Hawksmoor. But a painter couldn't escape his hands being splattered in oil paint and his clothes smelling of turpentine. But after the Restoration, a divide begins to uh, grow up between those who painted coaches, signs, houses, and those whose work was more artistic. And this was made stark by the fate of the Guild of Painter Stainers. Because after 1710, the Guild completely lost control of painters who were doing easel paintings. And this group, who they called uh, face painters or history painters, um, uh, were very much able to do their own thing. And the Guild became solely the regulator of the lower type of mechanical painters. The painter of easel paintings thus started to become what we would call uh, an artist rather than just a purveyor of ingenious images. Now, in a lecture last year, I described the uh, formation of London's West End, and I argued that uh, it was royal initiative that lay at the heart of its origins. And it was also royal initiative that began the process of establishing an artistic colony in Covent Garden, close to the court. Perhaps the first painter to establish himself there was Robert Streeter, who I've already mentioned. He became Charles II's own painter. But soon, the portrait painters of the Restoration began to set themselves up there. Here is Peter Lilly um, on the right painted um, with Hugh May in front of Windsor Castle. And he established what was effectively a portrait factory um, in a house on the north side of the piazza in Covent Garden. Lily, whose brilliant portraits in some ways came to uh, represent, uh, epitomize, if you like, the Restoration Age, first came to London not only to paint, but to deal in paintings and sell them. In fact, uh, he shared his house in Covent Garden with a picture dealer. And his house contained a large studio uh, where he worked, but also a series of magnificently furnished rooms to show that he 
was too a gentleman, and his walls were hung with great paintings, with drawings and prints, and this wonderful uh, Van Dyck, now in the National Gallery, uh, once belonged to Lily and hung in his house in Covent Garden. And as you walked up the stairs to uh, buy a portrait, you'd see this hanging on the wall. Lily's uh, younger rival was Godfrey Neller, who moved into the next door house in 1718. Other painters in Covent Garden uh, included James Thornhill, William van der Velde, Samuel Scott. And in fact, every single or any successful painter of the day had, as his ambition, a studio in the Covent Garden Piazza. And this, of course, is why there are so many famous, wonderful paintings of Covent Garden, the market and the piazza, because it was home to all the most important and most successful uh, painters of the uh, age. And one of the key points to remember about this colony of painters in the piazza at Covent Garden is that they all depended on each other and on a circle of expert technicians and suppliers to undertake their work. The famous painters would uh, paint the face and hands of a portrait, but the sitter's clothes would be painted by another painter called a drapery man who specialised in painting the rich textiles worn by wealthy Londoners. Other experts would fill in the background, and nearby there were also the colour men who produced the paint. Others supplied canvases, and yet uh, more uh, little firms uh, uh, supplied and made the elaborate gilded uh, frames. Also clustering around uh, Covent Garden were the print sellers who made an industry of translating commercial paintings into prints for mass production. Now, many years ago, when I was director of this museum, uh, and that was a long time ago, um, uh, we held a, a, an exhibition which was called Creative Quarters, and this is one of the maps in it. And uh, these uh, dots, uh, the orange ones, represent uh, the houses of uh, painters. And you can see uh, the density of the painters uh, around the piazza. The other dots uh, represent the, um, the other trades that were necessary to, um, uh, to support it. And you can see the density in around, uh, uh, in, in around Covent, Covent Garden going over towards um, Leicester Square. Um, a very, very intense um, area of, of, of people. So from the Restoration, the fashionable flocked to Covent Garden where they would be painted, they would view paintings, they would buy paintings, they'd have them framed and, and just generally be thought of sophisticated people of good taste. Here is uh, Gorn Hamilton's painting of an MP, uh, Thomas Walker, uh, and the painter uh, Peter Monomy. Uh, Monomy uh, was a specialist in, uh, in sea paintings, and they're painted here in his uh, showroom, uh, in his studio, uh, in about 1735. And here you can see uh, Walker being presumably sold uh, one of these sea paintings uh, by uh, Monomy. And you can see in the background of the painting, behind the easel, there are, there are more of his paintings on, on the wall that no doubt were also for sale. This is Francis Heyman's painting of himself uh, with his patron Grosvenor Bedford. Uh, this is painted in around 1748. And you can see that 
his uh, painting studio has in the background some sort of as yet to be used uh, uh, canvases, some stretchers, some frames. This is some sort of backdrop behind him. And the background, you can see some uh, statues on the sideboard and another painting uh, behind him. This is clearly the uh, studio of someone with very refined uh, taste um, and uh, a very, uh, a very fashionable person. And then we have a slightly earlier uh, painting here. Um, this dates from about 1716. This is Peter Tillerman, um, again, an artist's studio. And you can see here he's got some poor, humble, probably colourman here who's holding his palette and he's dipping his brush into it. Uh, we're not quite sure who this man is behind. Perhaps he's uh, uh, someone who's going to buy one of the paintings. But you can see some of his assistants sketching in the background, uh, books that he's referring to. And again, they're sort of accoutrements of taste, the globe, statues, uh, paintings propped up um, uh, round about. Now, I think one of the very important uh, points about the development of the London market for paintings in, in uh, Covent Garden is the types of painting that were required uh, by uh, the English. Because, of course, the types were of a much narrower subject matter than were being painted on the continent, the Catholic continent, I should say. Because there, enunciations, assumptions, depositions, holy families, stations of the cross, this was the bread and butter of any successful painter. In England, there was no market for such paintings. Religious art was virtually non-existent. Portraiture, landscape, allegory were the staples and were the things that filled people's houses. Well, I hope I've now said enough to make the point that by the early 18th century, it was, for, it was possible for any gentleman to demonstrate his taste and sophistication by buying art at an auction uh, or going to Covent Garden and uh, commissioning a, 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 a painting himself. In short, there was now an art market and anyone with taste and money could furnish their houses with fine pictures. But here we come, ladies and gentlemen, to an extremely important distinction. Charles I had a collection. That is to say, a large number of paintings assembled more or less scientifically, representing his artistic interests. And the whole collection, the whole compendium, comprising in terms of value and interest much more than the individual parts. This was a deliberate collection, not just an assemblage of decorative items. And there were very few, if any, who in the 40 or 50 years after the Restoration embarked on creating what I would describe as a collection. People had paintings, they had sculpture in their houses, and their houses were decorated by them. The paintings gave pleasure and status to the owner and interest and information to his guests, but that is as far as it went. And it wasn't really until the 1740s that you get a situation where aristocrats are making a collection which was in itself as important an artistic expression as the houses themselves. And from this period onwards, paintings, sculpture, book, medals, bronzes, etc., formed one discrete artistic achievement. The house in which they were displayed formed a second artistic achievement, 
and the landscape in which that was set formed a third artistic achievement. And so during the second quarter of the 18th century, there was a fundamental change in the status of things that adorned and decorated the houses of the aristocracy. What counted now was not simply possession of artistic objects, what counted was their selection, a process that had been made possible by this expansion of the art market that started after um, around 1685. Now, of course, such uh, a change in attitude to possessions had an architectural impact in the houses of the wealthy. At first, two types of room became the receptacle of these new collections, the gallery and the closet. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that the first combination of gallery and closet around a deliberate uh, collection was invented by Henry, Prince of Wales, in St. James's Palace. So that's James I's uh, uh, elder son, who, of course, uh, died, uh, leaving um, Charles, uh, Prince Charles to become Charles I. And this uh, combo of closet and gallery was then copied by, uh, first of all, Prince Charles and Charles I uh, when he became king at Whitehall. And so the fashion for the gallery and the closet was very much set by the pre-Civil War court. Now, galleries had, uh, for, for many, many years, for more than a century, been the place to hang your dynastic portraits. But after the uh, Restoration, they increasingly became the place to hang large numbers of history paintings and landscapes, and in due course, sculpture too. This uh, is a painting of the fifth Earl of Carlisle and uh, his son in the gallery at Castle Howard. So there's the Earl, there's his son. You can see his gallery is full of sculpture and painting, and they are presumably looking at a painting, which it looks to me as if the Earl is sort of teaching his son, it's part of the son's education, as I was saying earlier, to be a connoisseur of these things, and they're discussing uh, uh, where this painting perhaps is going to hang in their uh, new gallery. Uh, amazing painting on display at Castle Howard now, um, uh, painted by John Jackson. So um, the gallery is absolutely, um, uh, is actually key to this uh, development uh, in, in possession and collecting. The cabinet was a small room for things of small size and of great value. And amazingly, if you go to uh, Ham House uh, today, you will still see a cabinet. Uh, and it's one that still contains small pictures and other artistic objects, a complete unique survival of this sort of room with its um, origi original contents. And gradually, houses uh, began to have more than one cabinet. And they began to have separate libraries which were built to accommodate books and other smaller treasures. And in fact, uh, the building of libraries became one of the most important changes in aristocratic houses after about uh, 1700. 
in the 17th century. Uh, books had been kept in a closet. This is Ham House. Again, I absolutely love this room. It's my sort of perfect room, really. Um, here we have this incredible uh, room uh, lined with books with this very ingenious uh, sort of desk that flaps down. But you've got globes and this wonderful uh, pulpit-like set of library steps that you could trundle around and, and, and reach your um, books uh, from. Um, and this is created by the bibliophile uh, Duke of Lauderdale um, in 1672-4 and is very much representative of the of the first phase of uh, private aristocratic uh, libraries. Uh, but these places of repository, these early cabinets and uh, libraries, never uh, had the status that was to be later acquired by the galleries, libraries, and picture closets of the mid-18th uh, century, uh, ones represented, I think, by um, uh, the, the Castle Howard painting that I showed you uh, just uh, now. And the reason for that is, is that after the uh, Restoration, the interests of the aristocracy were actually more scientific than they were uh, artistic. Now, today, a statement like this might suggest that scientific interests were somehow in sort of opposition, or even the complete opposite from uh, artistic uh, interests. The arts and sciences today being seen as a very uh, distinct uh, disciplines. But this wasn't the case at the Restoration, or indeed uh, going back into the Renaissance. And if you think of Leonardo da Vinci and all those amazing drawings, I mean, he's equally fascinated about how to draw um, the, uh, someone's leg accurately as, as, as inventing a, a, a clever machine. The courtiers of Charles II were interested in the ingenious and the curious and in trying to explain them. Uh, a wonderfully painted picture and the study of the structure of the wing of a fly were both ingenious and demanded explanation. This is uh, one of those absolutely wonderful engravings from um, Hook's uh, work. This is, as you can see, a flea. Um, and uh, in the uh, restoration period, people were equally fascinated uh, with a, a brilliant portrait by Lily and the, the magnification and the drawing of a flea like this. The construction of the Dome of St. Paul's or the manufacture of a powerful telescope were feats, feats of ingenuity that were seen as artistic uh, in nature. People were fascinated by the exotic and rare plants, by strange and curious animals. and They wanted to categorize them. They wanted to understand them. And this is why all self-respecting gentlemen would have their own laboratories. And uh, they would carry out experiments. And uh, their libraries, which were full of books like the one I just showed you, had a very wide range of subjects, uh, uh, um, including uh, many, many scientific subjects too. And men like um, Ashmole, Tradescant, Cotton, they collected to advance knowledge um, and ingenuity. Um, here is... Uh, John Tradescant the Younger, with his friend um, uh, uh, Roger Friend. Um, and you can see this extraordinary collection of exotic shells. Um, and they're painted by Thomas de Critz, this wonderful painting in the Ashmolean Museum. And it sort of captures that curiosity, which was a sort of, uh, 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 which, which you can't really call scientific, but you can't really call it artistic, that was at, at the, the root of their mentality. Now, 
in this um, process that I've been describing this evening, uh, the danger is to see uh, a tendency that painting becomes and remains the principal and most important artistic expression in great aristocratic houses. And indeed, as I've shown, the status of painting and its av availability were definitely transformed after 1685. And this is sometimes uh, portrayed as being in strong contrast to the situation uh, before the Civil War, where textiles and plate remained the most prestigious items of furnishing in aristocratic houses. Yet, until at least the mid-18th century, tapestry remained hugely important. Think of, for instance, the great rooms at Blenheim Palace. All the major uh, staterooms there give uh, tapestry pride of place, and um, easel paintings um, hardly appear at all. And you can see these incredible tapestries here, woven specially to celebrate the Battle of Blenheim and the Duke's great achievements. And it is tapestry, really, that is the driving force uh, behind the decoration of those rooms. And at the Restoration, the Mortlake Tapestry Workshops that had originally been established by James I in 1619 were revived by Charles II with a grant of £1,000 a year. This was a huge sum of money. Um, and it showed that, at least in theory, Charles II wanted to re-establish the crown's leading place in the manufacture of high-quality tapestry. The re-established workshop was, in fact, not a success. And it's clear that despite the king receiving a number of tapestries from it, there was very little royal enthusiasm for the venture. But into the vacuum created by the decline of the royal manufactory came numbers of private workshops producing large numbers of tapestries that fed the domestic market. And in addition, it was calculated by Francis Points, the king's official tapestry maker, that in 1678, at least 100,000 pounds worth of tapestry was imported into England. This is a colossal amount in terms of value and a vast amount in terms of sheer numbers of uh, tapestries brought into England from France and the Low Countries. And 100,000 pounds was a far greater sum in value than that that was being spent at, at that time on the import of um, easel paintings. So, although the status of painting had risen, it, uh, uh, it was still a more prestigious and expensive choice to hang your greatest rooms in tapestry. And this is the signing of the Peace of Breda in 1667, um, a hugely significant international treaty. And you can see the room in which the, it is taking place um, hung densely with these uh, tapestries. And you just have to imagine how incredibly rich this must have been with them all in their, their finery and their clothes. The, the, the principal impact of these rooms was uh, in textiles. And uh, there's this interesting period when people sort of mix the two together. Here is an engraving uh, of, of um, Fontainebleau, um, and you can see in the background the way pictures are hung on top of tapestries. 
and this sort of layering, this sort of crossover period where tapestry re retains uh, its importance, but um, pictures are beginning to be um, uh, valued um, as uh, well. But let's just briefly return to Blenheim Palace for a moment, because as well as uh, vast, these vast tapestry series that were woven from the house, there were rooms that were painted with illusionistic wall murals. And this is the saloon that you can see here. And you can see that the effect of this room is achieved entirely through oil paint. Now, I'm not going to suggest that murals were uh, in any way new in the late 17th century, because of course they had adorned the walls of uh, uh, people's houses and churches and palaces uh, from the Middle Ages uh, onwards. Uh, Lord Burley, his enormous house at Tibbles, uh, uh, um, had uh, painted all his uh, principal rooms with wall murals and from floor to, floor to ceiling. But what happened in the 1670s was something actually that was uh, uh, very different and something completely new. Now, there were a number of taste makers at the Restoration Court. Perhaps the foremost amongst these was Rafe Montague. Uh, later the first Duke of Montague, who was appointed by Charles II as his ambassador to France. And one of the important, of the many important artistic outcomes of his stay in Paris was the recruitment of the Neapolitan painter and muralist Antonio Verrio, uh, who you see here. This is his self-portrait um, of him at, uh, uh, at um, Burley House, actually. Uh, which I will mention um, uh, later. And you can see, and I'll mention this uh, uh, in a bit, I think you can see that he's lived quite a dissolute life, and he, he sure did, and um, we can talk about that in a sec. But um, he had been working for Louis XIV at Versailles, probably under Charles Lebrun, and he came to England, and he painted the great staircase at Montague House, his first great commission um, in England for um, Rafe uh, Montague. We don't have a picture um, of that because, uh, unfortunately, the house burnt down before anyone could record it. But very soon, Montague uh, recommended him to uh, the other great uh, arbiter of taste at Charles II's court, uh, Henry Bennett, the first Earl of Arlington. And Arlington had a huge country house in Suffolk, Euston Hall, and uh, a great house in London, a Goring House, which again I've mentioned in a, a recent lecture, um, on the site of Buckingham Palace today, turned into Buckingham, Buckingham House. And in both his townhouse and his country house, he commissions Verio to paint the state rooms. I can't show you Goring House either, because that also was burnt down with, uh, uh, by, by fire. But the important point is that at Goring House, Charles II saw Verio's work and he was transfixed. What happened next was some extremely nifty work by Verio produced this spectacular canvas presented to the king. And what he is uh, showing here is not that he could paint, because it was totally obvious he could paint. What he was showing was what his painting could do for the king. And here you have this great sea piece. There is Charles II in the middle of it, uh, being thrust up, his crown being held by, or, um, or crown Z for the, the, the three kingdoms, being held by um, 
uh, these, these ladies and the background naval victories. I mean, what Verriot was doing was showing Charles uh, the, the, II that he was capable of uh, building the king's uh, image for him. And uh, it worked uh, because uh, uh, he won the greatest sort of commission of his age, uh, the commission to paint 20 ceilings in the king's new palace at, uh, 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 at Windsor um, and two great uh, staircases. And at Windsor, Verio invented the decorative formula that was subsequently to be applied to hundreds of houses up and down the country. It was uh, an illusion. There was a sky in which gods and goddesses and other complex allegories all sort of floated about in the ether, and they're framed by an architectural device, in this case, uh, an architectural balustrade that marked the break between the wall and the ceiling. In fact, this is the ceiling of the Queen's audience chamber at um, Windsor, which shows Catherine of Braganza in the middle, uh, her crown being held up above her, um, and various other complicated allegories going on, which I won't bother to explain, but the point uh, is made. In 1680, um, Charles II commissioned Verio uh, to paint the two largest and most important rooms at Windsor, which uh, included uh, a portrait of himself, which and this is it, um, one of the very few fragments of these rooms to survive. Um, this was St. George's Hall and, uh, and, the, and the Great Chapel. And these rooms were um, complete by 1680. And it's quite clear that Charles II and um, Arlington uh, were intimately involved with Verio uh, getting the programme together for these rooms. And Verio's great... Uh, bon viveur and drinker, um, womanizer, and I'm sure got on extremely well with Charles II, and I'm sure they all sat around the table. This is one of the sketches, uh, oil sketches he did for Charles II. I'm sure they all sat around the table discussing how um, these uh, uh, rooms were going to be painted. This oil sketch still in the royal um, collection. Um, and there is no doubt that the king liked what he was getting from uh, Verio. Uh, he was lavishly rewarded, and uh, on the completion of St. George's Hall, which you see here, he was given uh, a £400 bonus by the king in gratitude. That's a huge sum uh, of money. And these two interiors are vitally uh, important. In their use of all over trompe l'oeil, these interiors were something completely new in English architecture. But at the same time, they were spookily familiar. The banqueting house in Whitehall, the monarchy's greatest and largest public space, was covered by illusionistic painting on the ceiling, and the walls, when they were hung uh, uh, for great court events, were hung with tapestries, which also had a sort of illusionistic effect. But uh, Verio takes this uh, one uh, step um, further, and those who um, entered these rooms this was extraordinary, exciting, novel, and it set the fashion for grand English interiors for the next 50 years. The principle Verio adopted for the walls was really very much like the ceiling. The main uh, composition sort of floated in the air, but it was anchored to the room by an illusionistic architectural framework, most um, uh, normally uh, a screen of columns 
that it made you feel as if you were looking out from the room through a portico or through um, a, a, a lodger to the world outside. And you can see on the right-hand side here, this is the wall that, uh, that the, the, um, the sketch was done for. So you can see the, the, the wall there as it was uh, eventually um, realised. Now, Verio had some uh, difficulty after the abdication of James II, because, of course, he was a Roman Catholic. And uh, in the years after 1688, it was really impossible without uh, a royal protection to uh, uh, operate in London. And this, of course, is one of the main reasons that he worked in the wilds of Lincolnshire uh, for Lord Exeter at Burley House. And this in my opinion, is his surviving uh, masterpiece, The Heaven Room and the Hell Stairs. And here are the Hell Stairs with this terrifying, monstrous cat with its mouth open in which you can see the flames of hell and the writhing, tortured bodies falling out of it onto your head as you walk up the um, staircase, um, a really astonishing uh, um, piece of virtuoso and illusionistic painting. And you can see the architectural uh, framework that uh, he gives it. And as, uh, uh, for those of you who've been there will, 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 uh, will know this, but those of you who haven't, I'd urge you to go. And as you go up the stairs, you come out of hell and you enter the state apartments, which is heaven. <laughs> and here is heaven. And you can see the calm and the beauty and the naked putty, no sign of the fires of hell. Um, and uh, the, here you are in classical heaven uh, with the sky above clouded with gods. And you can again see this sort of architectural framework out of which you look to a landscape, a mythical landscape uh, beyond. And this uh, uh, device is what is replicated uh, uh, again and again. Here, um, uh, we return to Blenheim Palace, and you can see this uh, ceiling, which is painted, in fact, by Verio's former assistant, Louis Laguerre, um, in about 1720. It's essentially the same uh, formula. Now, of course, painting these enormous murals was more than a one-man job. Uh, in, in exactly the same way as the portrait studios I described in Covent Garden, these uh, muralists had a massive backup team behind them. There was a supply chain for the materials and there were a host of assistants. And in Verio's case, these were mostly French and Italian Catholics who had to have a special dispensation to work in royal uh, service. But the very fact that uh, Verio uh, needed so many assistants meant that the creation of these illusionistic interiors was very soon not just confined to the houses of the aristocracy, but very quickly permeated to the houses of rich merchants and even the upper gentry. And there were probably hundreds of illusionistic interiors and staircases in London alone. This um, is a house in Cheney Walk. You can see it's a relatively uh, modest, tight space, but here you can see um, the uh, illusionistic painting still uh, going. And this is rather a strange picture to show you. This is actually a, a picture of me um, 
And in the background is the mural on the walls of my old house in Stepney Green, uh, originally uh, uh, painted almost certainly by a painter called Robert uh, Robinson. Now this brings me this point about these London houses that are full. I'm just going to get myself off the screen because it's just too <laughs> dreadful. Um, uh, these, um, uh, these London houses, hundreds of them that are painted like this, brings me to a very, very important point. Aristocratic investment in paintings, in the public demonstration of good taste, was something that was increasingly exercised in the city rather than in the country. Last year, I described in my lecture about St. James's and the West End how, from the 1680s, the West End of London had been built by Whig aristocrats. And for them, the West End wasn't only a financial investment, it was a social investment. It was the basis of their lives. And the richest aristocrats quite often had a townhouse, a country house, and a suburban house, and they moved around between them. But with such a strong metropolitan focus, most aristocrats were too busy to spend that much time in the country. They had to go there because it was their job, job to rule the counties. But uh, most of them uh, were spending most of their time in, in London. And it seems extraordinary when you consider um, a vast house like Castle Howard, which cost £35,000 to build. The grounds cost him another £40,000 to build. But actually, his centre of his gravity is actually in London. And when... Uh, uh, in residence in the countryside, uh, they were doing business. They were doing county business. They were uh, uh, attending the race meetings. They were um, gracing the assembly rooms. They were seeing to the poor. They were entertaining. And so their great art collections were not focused in the country. Today, we might think of Robert Walpole's amazing collection of paintings that were hung at his country house uh, at Houghton in Norfolk. And this is a photograph taken uh, during that amazing exhibition called um, Houghton Revisited, when uh, the Marquis of Chumley got back from uh, Russia all the paintings that had been sold by his ancestors. So this is the, the painting hang, incredibly rich painting hang, uh, assembled by Robert Walpole. That is how we imagine it. But the simple fact is that until Walpole fell from power in 1742, all these paintings were in London, because that is where people could see them. Exactly the same went for Chatsworth. Um, a traveller called Thomas Martin said in 1766, and I quote, Chatsworth had very little in it which could attract the eye of a connoisseur. The pictures in it are few and indifferent. But turning to Devonshire House in Piccadilly, he was to write, the collection of pictures with which this house is adorned is surpassed by very few, either at home or abroad. You see, all the greatest treasures were in London at this period. The countryside was reserved for hunting, talking, and very importantly, drinking. So, how, in conclusion, do we characterise the patronage of art and architecture in the 70 years after the Restoration? This was an incredibly vibrant time that saw, for the first time, the emergence of an English art market. This provided opportunities for a large top slice of the population to participate in artistic activities, to own paintings and to commission portraits of themselves and their families. It wasn't really a native industry. It was a happy and exotic mix 
of English, Italians, Germans and Dutch, a blend of people and ideas that created a very distinctive period in our artistic history. This is Gorn Hamilton's Conversation of Virtuosos at the King's Head in the National Portrait Gallery. It's an extremely interesting painting, and if I had longer, I'd tell you the great story behind it, because he raffled this painting to the people um, in, in the picture. But that's not the reason I'm showing it to you. I'm showing it to you because, in many ways, this epitomises uh, what I've been saying, because it shows this incredibly eclectic mix of people. So you see um, Hamilton standing um, at his easel with, his, with a blue hat on. Uh, next door to him is the Swedish painter Michael Dahl. Uh, John Wooten, the painter, has got his arm on the shoulder of John Michael Reisbrack, who of course is a Dutchman. There are two engravers in the back, one of them holding a roll of paper. He's a Frenchman. You've also got James Gibbs there, um, uh, also um, holding a plan. He's a Scot. And you've also got William Kent and Charles Bridgman. This is that art world of the Restoration. Cosmopolitan, increasingly professional, with a sense of corporate identity as creators, perhaps then even artists. But this painting doesn't only speak of the men, it speaks of their art, which was increasingly collaborative. They worked in a period in which the boundaries between the visual arts were broken down and painting and architecture blended into a single art form. And it was an art form in which a large slice of the upper and middle class now had a stake. And lastly, this picture shows us an intensely urban scene. These men live and work in London. Some of their commissions may have been for and uh, been in the countryside, but their milieu is urban, and so are the interests of the vast majority of their patrons. Well, in my next and final lecture in this series, I'm going to look at the period after the court has ceased to be the uh, centre of architectural uh, patronage and initiative, a period when collectors and um, creators are the aristocrats, and we're going to explore how this has determined the course of British cultural development. Thank you very much.